Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Katani. In this episode, we're bringing you our favourite bits from 2021, from the history of mRNA to canine superheroes, brilliant bats to the world's most adventurous paleontologist. Enjoy. The scene is King's College, Cambridge, in the rather cramped room of Sidney Brenner, a talented South African scientist who'd been recruited to Cambridge by none other than Francis Crick himself. Gathered together are a small gang of the leading lights of molecular biology at the time. They're hanging out after a conference the previous day for a bit more hot science chat. As well as Crick and Brenner, there's also Francois Jacob, who's come over from his lab in Paris. Jacob starts explaining to the assembled group the results of his latest experiments with his colleagues Arthur Pardee and Jacques Monod, nicknamed the Pajamo Experiments, not Pajama, as sometimes appeared. Apparently, Pardee has discovered that a gene in bacteria encoding the enzyme beta-galactosidase seems to make a mysterious transient messenger RNA molecule, referred to only as X or X by the French team. Brenner suddenly lets out a loud yelp as a flash of insight hits him. Jacob later wrote, Francis and Sidney leaped to their feet, began to gesticulate, to argue at top speed in great agitation. A red-faced Francis, a Sidney with bristling eyebrows. The two talked at once, all but shouting, each trying to anticipate the other, to explain to the other what had suddenly come to mind. All this at a clip that left my English far behind. The insight that so exercised the two men was the realisation that this mysterious messenger X was the missing link between genes, ribosomes and proteins. The solution was crystal clear, making sense of all the tantalising experimental clues that had been piling up over the past decade. Francis Crick described this transient messenger RNA, what we now usually refer to as mRNA, using the most advanced technology that was available at the time, audio tapes. Now, if you're under 30, you might want to ask your parents to explain this next bit. Crick described mRNA as a kind of tape recording that was copied from the genetic instructions encoded within DNA, kept safe within the cell nucleus. The mRNA then goes out into the cytoplasm, where it's played back by ribosomes, analogous to a tape player, which follow the recorded instructions to the letter in order to put together the relevant protein. Then, this mRNA recording is destroyed, hence its transient nature. Straight away, during that April afternoon in King's College, Jacob and Brenner began planning experiments that would prove this idea to be correct carrying on their discussions that evening at one of Crick's legendary Cambridge parties. Jacob writes, A very British evening with the cream of Cambridge, an abundance of pretty girls, various kinds of drinks and pop music. Sydney and I, however, were much too busy and excited to take an active part in the festivities. It was difficult to isolate ourselves at such a brilliant, lively gathering with all the people crowding around us, talking, shouting, laughing, singing, dancing... Nevertheless, 
squeezed up next to a little table as though on a desert island, we went on in the rhythm of our own excitement, discussing our new model and the preparations for experiments. A euphoric Sydney covered entire pages with calculations and diagrams. Sometimes Francis would stick his head in for a moment to explain what we had to do. From time to time, one of us would go off for drinks and sandwiches. Then our duet took off again. A flurry of experimental work followed as Brenner and Jacob set about searching for mRNA, with help from geneticist Matt Mieselson at Caltech in Pasadena, who had a fancy ultra-centrifuge that was capable of separating out the different molecules inside cells, including mRNA. In less than a year, they had done it, isolating transient RNA messages that associated with pre-existing ribosomes to produce proteins, writing up their findings in a paper they submitted to Nature. But they weren't the only people on the trail. James Watson, the other half of Watson and Crick, had assembled a team of molecular biologists in the US and France who also discovered mRNA even going as far as to send a cheeky telegram to Brenner in February 1961, asking him to hold back publication of their Nature paper so that Watson and his colleagues could get theirs into the same edition of the journal. Amazingly, Brenner agreed, and the two papers came out back-to-back in May 1961. Other research groups were also making similar findings at the same time, notably Marshall Nirenberg, who went on to play a key role in deciphering the three-letter code of DNA, suggesting that even without the Good Friday meeting-slash-party in Cambridge, sooner or later mRNA would make itself known. Yet, despite the importance of the discovery of this molecular messenger and the multitude of Nobel Prizes awarded through the 1960s for similar key advances in unravelling the mysteries of molecular biology, there has never been a Nobel for the discovery of mRNA. Brenner, Crick, Jacob and Mono are often held up as the discoverers of mRNA. But as we've heard... The true story is more complicated than a flash of insight in a Cambridge college and a few frenzied experiments. Seeing as most of this story has come from Matthew Cobb's excellent piece about the discovery of mRNA, which I've linked to in the show notes and the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com, and also his book, Life's Greatest Secret, I'll leave it to him for the last word. Textbook authors, students and Wikipedia editors generally like simple stories. A simple view of the history of mRNA would claim that Jacob and Mono named it, while Brenner, Jacob and Mieselson subsequently isolated it. The complexity of what actually took place is much more in keeping with what we know about science. A series of different groups attack a problem using slightly different techniques, seeing the problem from different angles, before eventually a breakthrough makes clear what was previously problematic. Who discovered mRNA? It's complicated. No wonder the Nobel Prize Committee did not try and reward the discovery. Naming just three or even six people would be invidious. mRNA was the product of years of work by a community of researchers gathering different kinds of evidence to solve a problem that now looks obvious but at the time was extremely difficult. But that's the nature of history. It straightens out what at the time was tangled and unclear. We have the advantage of looking backwards, 
knowing the answer. The participants were peering into a foggy future, trying to reconcile contradictory evidence and imagine new experiments that could resolve the problem. Their collective insights and imaginations laid the basis for today's understanding and tomorrow's discoveries. Ringo, the golden retriever, was never expected to have a long life. Born in 2003 in a Brazilian dog breeding facility, he had been specially bred to carry the genetic fault responsible for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a devastating fatal muscle-wasting disease affecting around one in 3,500 boys, leaving them wheelchair-bound by their teens and usually not making it past their 30s. The disease is caused by a fault in a gene called dystrophin, which is found on the X sex chromosome in humans and in dogs. This means that female dogs who have two X chromosomes with one faulty version of the gene will be okay, as the healthy version on the other chromosome can act as a backup. But male dogs have one X chromosome and one Y chromosome, so they have no backup and will have the disease if they inherit just one faulty version of the gene on their single X chromosome. Ringo had been specially bred so that he would carry a faulty version of this dystrophin gene, similar to the version found in the human disease, so that researchers could understand more about how it develops and find new treatments. But while his brothers in the litter all started to show the signs of the doggy version of Duchenne's, Ringo was just fine. Lead researcher Mayanna Zatz was baffled. Genetic analysis showed that Ringo did indeed have the muscular dystrophy mutation, just the same as his brother's. So what was going on? But while Zatz and her team were getting busy in the lab, trying to figure out why Ringo wasn't developing doggy muscular dystrophy, he was uh, getting busy too. He took every opportunity to sneak out and engage in what's best called an informal breeding programme, managing to sire an impressive 49 puppies with four different females. Curiously, while most of Ringo's pups did also inherit the Duchenne genetic variant and develop the disease, one of them, Souffler, inherited the gene fault but never showed any signs of muscular dystrophy. Now they had two related dogs, that was enough for the researchers to start trying to home in on whether anything else in the animal's DNA was protecting them. By comparing Ringo and Souffler's genomes with those from other golden retrievers, they were able to home in on a specific alteration in a gene called Jagged One, which was present in the two resistant dogs, but none of the other affected dogs in the colony. Intriguingly, Lab tests revealed that this variation led to unusually high levels of Jagged One being produced in the muscles of Ringo and Souffler, presumably having some kind of protective effect. And when the team put this version of Jagged One into zebrafish that were also missing dystrophin, the fish were protected against developing muscle tears or other signs of muscular dystrophy. Sadly, Ringo passed away in 2014 at the age of 11, 
not a bad innings for a purebred retriever, and I've been unable to find out whether Souffler is still with us, although I suspect not. But their legacy lives on in the work that's now ongoing to try and figure out exactly how their version of Jagged One is acting to protect muscles against the impact of faulty dystrophin. The answers could pave the way for new treatments for children with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and potentially other conditions too, such as the muscle wasting that happens in old age. So thank you, Ringo and Siffler. You have been very good boys. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? Although they're more usually associated with spooky winter nights and creepy castles, bats are fans of the summer months. Head outside as dusk falls on a warm night and you might be lucky enough to spot some bats as they whiz by. I've got some that visit my garden through the summer and I love watching them zip around with incredible agility. Genetics Unzipped's roving reporter Georgia Mills is also a big bat fan, so she went in search of some experts to explain why bats are so special, how they involved their incredible abilities, what we can learn from them and also their role in spreading disease. First up, one of the world's leading bat geneticists, Professor Emma Teeling from University College Dublin. She's director of the Centre for Irish Bat Research and co-founding director of Bat1K, a global consortium sequencing the genomes of every single one of the world's living bat species. So, what makes bats so special? Bats are probably the most extraordinary of all mammals. If you think about it, they're the only mammals that have achieved true self-powered flight. Anything else just falls with style, but bats can fly. One in five of every living mammal on this planet today is actually a bat. And there's about 1,400 bats, give or take another 200 different species. They're found throughout the entire world. They're missing only from the extreme polar regions. But also, they can use extraordinary sensory perception. So bats are able to orient in complete darkness by using sound alone. And if you were ever in tropical rainforest at night, out catching bats of the likes of Panama, and what you'll see these great big huge spider webs and giant spiders in the middle of the web. And you see these small bats flying in total darkness. We can hear them with our bat detectors. And they're able to use sound to pinpoint the spider and to avoid the web using sand alone in complete darkness. The other unique thing that bats have is that they seem to have evolved mechanisms to slow down aging. So typically in nature is a law, small things live fast and die young. Think of a mouse, think of a shrew. But bats are the smallest of all mammals. The smallest mammal in the world is actually the bumblebee bat. Shrew biologists will argue with me, but we're right, they're wrong. <laughs> but bats seem to live for an extraordinarily long time. So they have booked the trend. So they're small. They have a really high metabolic rate because they fly, but they also live for an extraordinarily long time. And indeed, they have the lowest rates of cancer ever recorded in any order. Bats have evolved mechanisms to somehow fight this metabolic and size constraints that drive the aging process. So they're able to 
not get cancer and live for an extraordinarily long time. Indeed, the bat that holds a record for living the longest is Myotis brantii. It's this brant bat in a population in Siberia. And a male was caught as an adult and then he was ringed. But what was extraordinary about this was that this bat was then caught 41 years later. And now I believe the record's 43, if not more, with no signs of ageing. They have so many superpowers. We haven't even talked about their other one. (laughs) (laughs) And their other one is their ability to live with viruses. Bats, because of their unique immune response, potentially are reservoirs for many, many pathogens because the virus doesn't kill them. They've evolved mechanisms. Their unique immune system allows them to tolerate and live with different pathogens. So indeed, if you study the genome of bats, all of these very unique mammalian adaptations that we could use to our benefits will be found within the bat genome. So that's why I study them. Wow. And I didn't even talk about their use in ecosystems. <laughs> talk about that now if you want. I mean, this podcast, we've only got half an hour. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to have about 10 of them. <laughs> so how are you looking into bats and all their superpowers? So you, you're, you examine their genes. So tell me about your project. So the project you're talking about is a Bat 1K project. This is a project whereby we want to sequence the genome of every single living bat species to chromosome error-free assembly. And to do this, we want to promote bat diversity. We want to uncover their unique adaptations. And we want to bring people all around the world who are interested in understanding bats together. So we published our pilot project, which is, as you can see behind me there, we got the cover of Nature in July. We're very proud of that. So you you got your your study done, you got your cover of nature, congratulations. Tell me what kind of things you found. So first of all, we wanted to, as a phylogeneticist, I wanted to try and uncover where do they fall in the tree of life. Trying to place bats within the tree of life is difficult because they fall in this superordinal group called Eurasiatheria. So I hoped that when we had full genomes, when we could go and pull out all the orthologous regions, when we could use new, very different methods to account for all the appropriate rates of change, would we be able to find unambiguously where the bats fell? And we did. So what you find is a bat group in Eurasiatheria. And you have at the base, you have the true insectivores, the elliptifla. Next branch down, you have rats. And then you have all of the other Laurasiatherian orders that group together, such as carnivores and horses, pangolins and so forth in different groups. So we found where they went in the tree, which was, as far as I I was happy. There's still parts that are difficult and tricky, but we found where they fell in the tree. So with that information, we were then able to go and look at, okay, what's going on when you look at expansion of gene families or contraction of gene families, for example. Can we find any evidence of selection of different environmental and evolutionary pressures acting on bats that maybe could underlie and show us where their parts of the genome had evolved that was different, that maybe led to their unique adaptations? So we did a whole series of this. So what we found, which was particularly interesting to their immune response, was that you can see in the genome that there's expansions of these families, these apobec family, for example, which are these antiviral mechanisms, and they're expanded in the bats. So right there and then that gives you think, okay, they have evolved antiviral mechanisms. We found evidence of selection acting on many of their different immune genes that are evolved in potentially their downstream inflammatory responses. We found a whole series of genes that were knocked out 
that weren't there in bats. Again, this has been seen before from the first two bat genomes ever sequenced. And that indeed bats are missing a cascade of genes in their inflammatory response. Now, what does this mean? So what this means is bats seem to be able to mount a very aggressive antiviral response, but yet they equally respond to that by mounting an equally aggressive anti-inflammatory response. Now, we could see this in the genome. That was fantastic. We found evidence of selection in certain genes that maybe underlie their echolocation capabilities. And this is just looking at six species. I mean, all the amazing things bats can do that have this genetic underpinning, it seems like these things would be very useful for everyone else to be able to do too. So do we know what's special about bats or is it just by chance they just had this mutation that was super good for them? So this is a very good question. It's a little controversial. I have my theories. Not everybody agrees with me. So if you think, what do all bats do? They all fly. So flight happened in the ancestral bat. And so flight happened somewhere between 80 and 65 million years. There's 20 million years of evolution where the pre-bat evolved flight. And so what had to happen to evolve flight? So you had this huge morphological adaptation of the skeleton. Finger bones had to grow. You had to have flight membrane grow from an ankle, grow from a tail. Potentially, it's not that crazy to think that other pathways had to evolve to allow for flight. Now, what I mean by this is flight is the most metabolically costly of all forms of locomotion. And typically what they've shown is that bats will expend three to ten times more energy when they're flying than when they're not, for example. Their oxygen consumption is huge when they fly. So the question is, what is the metabolic cost of flight? It's been argued it's very, very high. High, high metabolic costs causes the cell to have to, I suppose, it's like an engine. The engine has to rev up. The engine has to consume lots of oxygen. But then there's also a byproduct of metabolism, which are the free radicals. And so the idea is that free radicals break up your cells. Free radicals excite your immune system. So there's deleterious effects of having too high a metabolic rate. And so potentially, I argue that bats have to evolve mechanisms, the immune response to deal with this. They also have to evolve the ability to repair their DNA. They had to evolve the ability to remove the damage. So they had to evolve the ability to maintain homeostasis despite this high metabolic rate. The result of this is an ability to tolerate pathogens. So they deal with pathogens in the same way as they deal with this constant sterile inflammation they experience. So they're able to dampen their immune response. But also, they then don't experience the same level of age-driven inflammation. As we get older, what's the thing that really kills you as you get older? Your own inflammatory response, arthritis, all these different types of old age diseases are your immune system potentially going crazy. So the bats have evolved these mechanisms. And I started this long-term project in Brittany and France studying these long-lived bats where we take a non-lethal sample from the same individual year after year after year as they age. I wanted to see, well, what are the bats doing to potentially slow down the aging process? And indeed, all of those things I told you about, you can see that happening in bats as they age. And it's different to us. They upregulate their DNA repair mechanisms as they age. They upregulate their ability to remove protein damage as they age. They maintain their immune response when you look at their different cytokine transcripts. And their mitochondria, it's firing like crazy and they're producing all of this free radicals and so forth, but they do not show the same level of oxidative stress damage you would expect. So is it flight or is it something very unique in these long-lived bats? I don't know. 
The question is, how do you really test it? Best thing to do would be to be able to look at a non-flying bat, compare it with a flying bat and see, but all bats fly, so that's not going to work. So the other thing is compare with our other flying vertebrate group, which are our birds. This is something that I think that we do need to do. Does flight drive this or not? And so now people are really addressing this question. For sure, something weird's going on with their inflammatory response. You can see this in the ancestral bat. Some bats, you have long-lived bats and you have the shorter-lived bats. You have the in-between living bats. You have the bats that feed on fruit, the bats that feed on insects, the bats that feed on other bats, the bats that feed on fish, all these different ecological strategies that have different lifespans. And by looking at this phylogenetic independent contrast of long versus short, accounting for ecological variation, we can see is it a signature within their genomes that underlies their longer health span and their unique immunity. And so that's why I think we should do it all. I mean, thinking from a very selfish point of view, is there any way we can steal this ability short of learning to fly ourselves? Can we use the genetic information to help human health? I absolutely, completely 100% think we can. We are mammals. They are mammals. We share the same suite of genes. And if you think about it, for example, let's look at what we know about SARS-CoV-2. What we found that in, in a hospital, a local hospital here in Dublin, there was researchers, when an individual patient comes in to them, they look at their inflammatory, their anti inflammatory cytokines. They can predict by looking at this ratio whether this person is probably going to need to be intubated or not. So if you have an immune response that is not like a bat, you're going to be sick. If you had an immune response much more like the bats, they don't do so badly. They do better. They can deal with this. So they're the same genes. And what you can do is you can look at, for example, what happens when a bat gets exposed to a pathogen? What do they do to allow them to live with and tolerate that pathogen in terms of switching these genes on and off? You have to have enough of an antiviral response to neutralize the pathogen and then enough of an anti-inflammatory response to neutralize your own inflammatory response. So by studying these, we will get insight into when we give us the antiviral versus the anti-inflammatory drugs. Now, that's just a kind of a quite a crude example. And what about the bats themselves? Because I know they've got all these superpowers, but they're still, they're not all doing great, are they? There are still a conservation concern. They're a huge conservation concern. Think about when you're younger and you looked up in the the sky in the summer. If you're out somewhere in the countryside or even in the city, you'd see bats. And you'd walk through woodlands, you'd see bats. But you know what else you'd see? When you're driving through the country lanes, what would your windscreen be full of? Insects. And so right now we're having this huge global crisis where we're losing our arthropods. And if you think about what feeds on arthropods, what modulates them, they're the bats. So we need them because they're of huge ecological importance. So bats are keystone predators in ecosystems and they modulate all the different arthropods and they feed on pest insects, for example. They would feed on an insect that would eat crops. It's been estimated that if you were to wipe out one particular species of bat in the United States of America, it would cost the U.S. taxpayer three billion U.S. dollars in insecticide to do the job that the bats do. We got to find ways to live with the bats much more, regardless of their superpowers. And again, part of Bat1K, we want to promote bat conservation. We want to say, right, they're really important. Here's why they're important. Let's all work together to try and conserve our bats because our ecosystems function better. And we are simply another species that exists in our ecosystems. So you take out those keystone predators and the modulators of our, our ecosystems and it doesn't work. I mean, the bats are like bees. 
we need to keep them or we aren't going to do so well as a species. And do you have a favourite species of bat that you'd like to tell us about? Oh, that's a very naughty question. <laughs> <laughs> that's like asking me, do I have a favourite child? The wonderfully enthusiastic Emma Teeling from University College Dublin talking to Georgia Mills about bats and their fascinating genomes. Ferenc or Franz Nocce von Felscher Silvash was a Hungarian aristocrat born in 1877 who grew up in Transylvania in what's now Romania. Gifted with a scientific mind and an adventurous spirit, Nocce not only gained a PhD in geology focusing on mapping the area surrounding his family estate, but also found time to smuggle weapons for the Albanian resistance fighting against the Turks, work undercover as a spy in World War I, be the first person in history to hijack an aircraft, and jack in his job as head of the Hungarian Geological Institute to ride around Europe on a motorbike with his male lover, who he also hired as his secretary, looking for fossils. But it was the strange ancient bones he found on his family estate back in 1895 that cemented his ideas about island dwarfism. The fossils turned out to have come from a sauropod dinosaur from the late Cretaceous period, of the same family as well-known giants like Diplodocus, Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus. These are huge, pillar-legged, necky beasts, more than 25 metres long and estimated to have weighed almost 15 tonnes. Notch's Magiosaurus, literally translated as Hungarian lizard, were tiny by comparison. Think of a dinky Diplodocus with adults measuring just six metres long and weighing in at around one tonne. Notcher was way ahead of his time in suggesting that his ancestral home had once been an island leading to these downsized dinos. But there's now compelling evidence that in the late Cretaceous, when Magisaurus was a thing, most of what we now call Europe was submerged between a body of water known as the Tethys Ocean, with today's higher ground forming islands, including the ancient island of Harteg, where tiny dinosaurs once roamed, and on which Nopcha's well-heeled ancestors built their home. But while both Bate and Nopcha were convinced of the theory of insular dwarfism, they may have been surprised to know that the transforming effects of island life might have come closer to our own species than anyone expected. In 2004, scientists announced the discovery of some very small, very old, but very human bones in a cave on the Indonesian island of Flores. Homo floresiensis, a.k.a. the hobbit, was just one metre tall and weighed less than 30 kilos. This, and another haul of some much older bones, suggest that these small hominids were present on Flores for a long time, between hundreds of thousands and tens of thousands of years ago. Even more recently, another diminutive human has turned up on a Southeast Asian island, Luzon in the Philippines. It's hard to put a height on Homo luzonensis, as it's known, from just a handful of hand, foot and thigh bones and teeth. But like the pint-sized elephants on the Mediterranean islands, its existence does suggest that human species, when isolated on islands, may have shrunk more than once. That's all for now.
If you're a relatively new listener and you like what you've heard, why not go and dig back through our three years of archives to catch up on what you've missed? We'll be back in 2022 with a brand new series of interviews and stories, ranging from the history of genetics right up to the cutting edge. I'd like to say a huge thank you to the Genetic Society for supporting the podcast and everyone who's contributed over the year. And in particular, to all my team at First Create the Media, who helped make this series happen, especially Emily Norvang for writing, Shannon Parker for publishing, our roving reporter Georgia Mills, Tabitha Dale on those Twitters, and our fabulous and very long-suffering editor, Hannah Barrell. Plus, a special shout-out to Henry Nichols for his work on our episode about genes and giants, which that last clip came from. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at geneticsunzip. And please, please, as always, do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani, with additional research and scripting by Emily Norvang. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music is composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Oh, my God.